It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Welcome to the one year anniversary edition of the Do Politics Better podcast. One year ago today, you and I are upstairs. We turn on the microphone. All we had really was the theme song. We had that picked out, but I remember you saying, when are we going to do this? I'm like, well, let's get the microphone. Let's turn it on. And we just started talking. It was like a Friday night at like 6 p.m. We just made a decision. But I also remember saying to you, do we have things we're going to talk about? And you're like, we're going to wing it. (laughs) (laughs) So later in the podcast, we are going to talk about our original outline when We were talking about doing a podcast. We had it all scripted out, and we have abandoned that script. The whole thing. For good reason. You'll hear later why we abandoned our original script, but that's going to be a fun segment. Let's get right into the news, because it has been a news-filled week, especially on the election side. Right. We're back to filing. Filing started again last week, and there have been some interesting filings, and also just a lot of folks that we're seeing, especially in those congressional districts that have been drawn. Yeah, so on the General Assembly side, if we could start there, because I have been saying on the podcast and then in conversations with clients, I had heard that Senator Ralph Heiss was going to stand down and allow Senator Ballard, Deanna Ballard, to uh, run for that Senate seat. They got double bunked during redistricting and surprised this week. Yeah, I think a lot of people had heard that rumor that they weren't both going to file in that district. So one was waiting on the other to make a decision. However, on Tuesday, when Senator Heiss filed, it became pretty newsworthy because they are two high-profile senators. <laughs> Powerful. He's a yeah. big chair. She's a education chair. She moves a lot of legislation. This is going to be a clash of the titans. I think if you look at it geographically, and her center of the district is in Boone and Watauga County, you would think she's going to have the edge. I think someone was telling me this week that uh, Watauga County is about 40% of the district. So this is going to be a race to watch. Other races, a good friend of ours, He's been on the show. One of my favorite podcasts, one of my favorite legislators, Representative Jamie Bowles. He's in a primary. He is double bunked with Representative Ben Moss. And Ben Moss is a freshman, but he is the new member whip. So in Western North Carolina, we have Representative Jake Johnson taking on David Rogers. I mean, there seems to be a theme here, right, in Western North Carolina, where there's not a lot of population growth or maybe even population decline. This was not purposeful by the leadership. This is just kind of where the population centers are, and and unfortunately, they had to get double bumped. That's reminding me that I think the speaker said to the media last week or the week before that since the court allowed them to look at political data in those new maps, he took a look at it and said it really was a wake-up call. It was surprising to actually see that political makeup and where those population declines really have been. Big matchup in eastern North Carolina. You have Senator Norm Sanderson versus Senator Bob Steinberg. 
This is another rural district where they had to double bunk senators. So in that GOP primary, you're seeing a matchup there. And really, Sky, you couldn't get two legislators further apart on personality. I'm sure they agree on many issues. Right. But everyone remembers Senator Steinberg's fickle pickle moment (laughs) of what year was that? I think it was 2018 when he first ran. Hilarious. Um, so on his Facebook Lives, and he would do those Facebook Lives every Sunday. Sunday night, Real Talk with Bob. <laughs> it starts with a Pledge of Allegiance, his wife holding the flag, a prayer, and then he just dives into uh, a good hour and a half of good entertainment. <laughs> and everyone knows that Senator Sanderson is a very reserved man. So the differences in these two, I think, will be highlighted. There will be a comprehensive list of candidates running. We'll put that on our Twitter and our social media pages, but check that out. Going to be some good matchups, some fun matchups, some sad matchups. I I hate to see some of these legislators lose, and it's painful to see friends go after friends, but that's just the way elections go. That's showbiz, baby. (laughs) (laughs) The General Assembly will return next week for the technical corrections bill and the House announced that they would be taking that vote on the mask override. This is going to be an interesting vote. We've talked to some Democrats who, you know, it seems with those Democrats, they have enough votes to override a veto. What's interesting to me is since that bill passed and since Governor Roy Cooper announced that he wanted local governments to make masks optional. Some of those school districts have gone ahead and done it. What are those senators and representatives going to do? There's so many things that I think folks have to consider and that I when I say folks, I mean Democrats who voted for bills. Like you consider what your local delegations doing like I like you said um, about mask mandates, but also with filing happening right now and filing ending on Friday, maybe they're going to get a primary challenger who is going to say that they voted with the Republicans. So I think that maybe if there are no primary challengers to those folks, they would feel safer about voting to override. So it remains to be seen if the governor's streak, he, has, he is batting a thousand on vetoes being sustained. We'll see if that lasts next week couple staffing announcements, transitions we heard this week. Mm-hmm. Trafton Dinwiddie mm-hmm. left the speaker's office. I think, was that last Monday? I think it was last Monday. Yeah. This, and he's going to Warden Smith. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lobbyist. Yeah. A good, good man. Yeah. Good guy. We loved working with Trafton in the speaker's office. So professional, so thorough, just a genuinely good guy. Welcoming welcoming him to the lobbying ranks. He'll be a good one. And then we heard over at Representative Joe John's office, Virginia Reed has made an announcement that she's leaving his office. Yes, she's going to do political consulting. So we'll be sad to see her go. And as Brian always refers to her as her Twitter name, VA says, get that vax. And she has a great Twitter feed. So we'll, you know, we'll see her around town, but we'll also get to keep up with her and Toby, her dog on Twitter. Always a fun Twitter feed. 
Also, Pat Ryan left mm-hmm. Senator Berger's office to start his own PR firm, and Lauren Horsch moved up. Yeah, she's now the Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications. And again, someone else who is a great follow on Twitter, great sense of humor, very funny, very professional, and a talented communications staffer at the General Assembly. Congratulations to her as well. So a couple weeks ago, we had John Hood on the podcast from the John Locke Foundation, and you were talking about balancing that out with the Justice Center. And so we had former Representative Rick Glazier on, and he is the current Executive Director of the Justice Center. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Former Representative Rick Glazier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to start us off, tell us about what your job is now. What do you do on a daily basis? I'm the executive director of the North Carolina Justice Center, a pragmatic, progressive think tank and advocacy and litigation center uh, that's uh, statewide with a mission to alleviate poverty in North Carolina and all of its collateral consequences. Um, We work in multiple areas to holistically look at policies as well as to litigate and help families and communities to work through poverty issues and to achieve a better standard of life. And the Justice Center was founded in 1995? We're in our 26th year. Okay. But because of COVID, celebrating our 25th anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it was founded as a result of limitations put on legal services by the federal government, which eliminated their ability to do immigration cases, to do class action, and to lobby uh, on policy matters. Yeah. And how many total staff do you have? Approximately 60. Plenty of attorneys there. Uh, about 18 attorneys, 15 or 14, 15 are litigators. The others are attorneys in other roles. Uh, we have a number of policy masters and PhD experts. We have a, 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 are the only one in the country like uh, our organization. We have a journalistic capacity with five full-time journalists, seven to the journalistic arena, but five as journal, full-time journalists. Um, and and uh, obviously a number of core administrative and support staff and uh, a number of lobbyists as well as contract lobbyists. I first met you in 2002. I visited you in Fayetteville. You were an attorney down in Fayetteville on the school board at the time. I was on the school board at the time from 96 to 2002. And then when I got in the house, I got off the school board. Talk a little bit about your political career. Yeah, I served uh, from 2002 to September of 2015. And I served in that period eight years in the, well, eight years in the majority, effectively, and five and a half in the minority. But I had the, the real pleasure and the great learning experience of being the only class to come in in 2002-2003 with a 60-60 split in That's the House. Right. And what that did, among other things, is it was a great learning experience. It made us know each other. It also made everybody relevant. Yeah. Um, and it also eliminated the fringes of both parties. What got passed got passed with centrist Republican and centrist Democratic votes, uh, a model that would be nice to return to. 
During your tenure, you worked on so much, but a lot of folks know you as the education go-to legislator in the House. Was it the school board, serving on the school board, that propelled you into this job? Yeah, it really did. Um, I had no intention of ever running for political office. I was supporting candidates, including my former partner who's now in the legislature, Billy Richardson, who was in the legislature in the 90s. Um, But when he got out of the legislature, a seat opened up on the school board. My kids were in elementary and middle school, and it was a way for me to get involved in the community on issues I really cared about but have to be a part of their lives. We had just been, um, uh, we were getting ready to do the largest bond issue, school bond issue in the county had ever had. And so that's how I got involved. When I got on the school board, um, uh, there was a lot we could do, but I also found that most of the policy was really coming from the state and federal government. And when Bill Hurley decided he was going to retire, he was a seven or eight term uh, state representative and former mayor of Fayetteville, great mayor of Fayetteville, um, uh, the seat opened up. And I decided to run for the legislature, one in 2002, and then uh, in, a, in what was then quintessentially a swing district yeah. and remained a swing district yeah. through all of the iterations of redistricting. Um, and, and the reason I went in the legislature dominantly was um, both social justice issues but education issues and improving uh, the support for public education in the state. I still believe that um, public education is the only institution uh, that allows our people to live under one, as one nation under one flag with a common set of values. Um, and uh, and still believe that. Yeah. Taking a step into political office is a big step. It was, particularly for someone who uh, who started off life and uh, through high school as a tremendous introvert, um, scared to ever talk in public. So it was. I had to really learn a lot through um, through college and and uh, law school, and then into early public life. Um, but I felt called. Um, I, you know, there's a, uh, an awful lot in my uh, spiritual and religious background, which teaches that you can never separate yourself from the community um, and that you have an obligation, a maintenance obligation to do your part. Um, and, and I felt like the skill sets that I'd been given and, and been mentored so well by so many people um, put me in a position, and financially I was at least in a partial position, Uh, to be able to give back through community service. And it just happened to be fortuitous that those positions, the school board position and then the house position opened up where incumbents were leaving. Um, And I felt like I could do the job. It's interesting. I have a funny story about this. So three weeks into my first term, uh, there was a bill uh, that because there'd been a lot of snow in western North Carolina. And, uh, And there was a bill to reduce the number of days kids went to school from 180 to 165. Well, as a school board member, I felt pretty strongly that was a good policy because we couldn't make up all that many days. But then I read the Constitution, because we are lawmakers, right? Mm -hmm. We ought to follow the law. Um, And the Constitution said that you had to go to school uh, nine months. And so my first speech on the floor uh, was opposing a bill that philosophically I actually agreed with and saying, you know, if we want to do this, but we can't do this without a constitutional amendment. And the next speaker was a 10-term or 9-term representative, got up and said, Representative Glazier, you're new here. This is the House of Representatives. We don't care about the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, maybe I've made the wrong decision here. (laughs) Let's talk about your floor speeches. You were really 
I think, the best debater during that era when you came in from 2003 until you left. And we've had Republicans on this podcast who have said that someone that they would turn around and listen to and learn something from was you. Well, that's very, very kind of them. And, I, I, you know, I, I always thought that it was important. Uh, well, first, you don't have to speak on everything. So I tried to do the things to speak where I thought it was important and I had something to say that not 20 other people had already said. Um, but I always wanted to do it in a civil way. My mentor was a Reagan nominee to the federal district court who hired me as a law clerk, Judge James Fox, who was a wonderful mentor for five years. And, um, and he always said, civility breeds civility and incivility breeds incivility in every aspect of life. And I tried to bring that to the floor with an understanding that we were all there for one purpose, to improve North Carolina. And that if I was going to speak on something, people had a right to know why. Mm -hmm. What's your reason? And that you didn't make it personal, that you talked about the issue in a way to try to find consensus to solve the problem. I uh, was very lucky in my legislative career. I ended up being a prime, uh, one of the four prime sponsors, on 500 bills that passed into law in my 13 years. And not a single bill, not a single one, failed to either have a Republican vote a Republican sponsor or a Republican prime sponsor. I never had a bill pass where I didn't make sure I had at least one, and often many. And, and that's because I also adopted a philosophy early on, uh, again, really thinking through my lessons learned and on the school board lessons learned. It was much better to get 60% of what I wanted with everyone agreeing than it was to get 100% of what I wanted on a 61-59 vote because that will never be final and people will always have hard feelings. So you avoid that. Yeah. So out of those 500 bills, <laughs> is there a bill that really like has your heart or one that you are the most proud of? I just have to say several. Uh, one is the creation of the nation's only actual innocence commission, which is still stunningly the nation's only actual innocence commission. I think the second bill was part of a team that eliminated smoking in bars and restaurants, which I think contributed immensely to the public health of the state. Um, so that that would would, would be up there, um, and and I, I think at the time, uh, in addition, being involved for five years in the creation of a whole series of both criminal justice reform bills and ethics reform bills. And let's talk about the Innocence Commission. I was there in the House that night. I was up in the gallery, and I kept going down to the second floor to third floor because it was just such a dynamic night. We had former Chief Justice I. Beverly Lake off the House floor, and you were in the House chamber with your primary sponsor, uh, Representative Paul Stam. Some people call him Skip Stam. And... You two probably couldn't be more opposite on social issues, but could come together and work so well on criminal justice issues. And that night in particular, I felt was probably the best debate I had ever witnessed at the General Assembly. Can you talk us, take us through that bill a little bit? Yeah, the, the bill was uh, uh, came out of as a series of bills, but the most important one out of Chief Justice Lake's uh, uh, actual Innocence Inquiry Commission, where he became convinced in the late 1990s and early 2000s that we were having some high-profile uh, cases where people uh, with life sentences or on death, uh, death row 
that were looking like they may have been, and in a couple of cases had already been found, actually innocent, and said, there's something systemically wrong here. We, we need to fix what we can fix to make sure that we get uh, uh, the, the right perpetrator and not the innocent person. And his commission uh, recommended this bill. And Skip and I, who were friends and remain very close friends today, we work on things in our uh, lives today together, um, uh, always, I, I, we started with a profound respect for each other. And, 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 and I think the Chief Justice brought us together on this and The bill. Chief Justice was a Republican. He, he was a right. Republican, right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it was important. This bill, I, I go back and I think, uh, much like sort of Nixon opening the door to China, um, <laughs> the, a, a Democratic Chief Justice could not have done what this Republican Chief Justice did in mm. this arena. Um, and uh, Skip and I worked hard on, on getting sponsors for the bill. We had it ready to go. We had the uh, support of the leadership at the time. But it was controversial. We, I mean, no other yeah. state in the country had one, and you were opening up old convictions, right? So there was built-in systemic resistance to yeah. doing that. But we both thought uh, that it, the, the, there's no legitimate penological reason and no societal goal fostered by keeping in prison the wrong person while the killer or the rapist or the, uh, the, the criminal goes free mm -hmm. to continue to prey on society. The goal is to get it right. Mm -hmm. And and we uh, worked hard on a strategy to privately work with our colleagues and then publicly on the House floor. And I, I think when he and I were able to work together, and we did on many, many bills, um, there was a synergy uh, of common purpose and a belief by uh, members of both parties who respected, I think, both of us, um, that that we that, that they ought to consider the arguments that were being made, and I think in the end it it, it won, as I recall, something like about seventy to forty, mm -hmm. um, and then it passed the Senate, um, and I think um, it would not have happened without Skip, mm -hmm. and uh, and it all would not have happened without Chief Justice Lake. But that's the idea of legislating, right? It is to operate outside your cultural lens for the betterment of everyone in the state. And it's to find the way to do things together, to solve problems, to make systems better. And uh, we've lost a little bit of that, I mm -hmm. think, unfortunately, uh, in Washington and Raleigh. And I hope we regain that theory. Yeah, and I just want to point out that for maybe our younger listeners or younger legislators, for that matter, you would think, OK, the Innocence Commission, Democrats are in control. It's a slam dunk. It was a very different Democratic Party. We talk about the bipartisan support for the bill, but it was bipartisan opposition to the bill. There was. Um, uh, yeah, I can think of one Democratic <laughs> legislator who was very opposed. Um, and, and we weren't. It, it was a 68-52 House split, I think, yeah, back then. Yeah. Um, and it was opposed by the DA's conference. It was opposed, right. by, as I recall, by the Sheriff's Association. You know, it, it was a step that no other state had taken. Right. Um, but I think people have come to believe it was a great step taken, and it's now um, firmly entrenched in the criminal justice system as a fallback, a fail-safe, mm. because we're all human. We yeah. make mistakes, and it's the best way is to correct that mistake, to accept responsibility for it. Let me ask you, and I'm going to bring it back to your relationship with Representative Stam. When I say you guys disagreed on some policy issues, I mean, you guys went at it on the floor about the issues of various causes. On a personal level, how do you 
leave the house floor or leave session where you have both dinged each other's bills up, but then come together? Like what, what are those conversations like? Do you ever acknowledge well, first, that? First, there's a conversation that always happens. That is, you don't leave the building or the floor without coming over and saying, good job, Skip. Good job, Rick. Um, you know, disagree with you, but I, you know, we got these three bills tomorrow. Let's talk about those. That's first thing. Second, is that there was a mutual respect of positions. I mean, he would drive me crazy on some social issues, and I would drive him crazy. But, but we understood on 75% of the issues, we had some real agreement, and on probably 50% of the issues, we felt strongly together. And you work on the things you can work on, and you respect the fact that there are going to be disagreements. Democracy is about having those messy disagreements. Um, and, and, and the other thing that's, that Skip did... Um, Skip would always tell me in advance, I'm going to be doing this. And I would tell him in advance, I'm going to be doing this. So we didn't surprise each other. And he said, I've got the votes. And I said, you know, we'll see about that. <laughs> um, and, and he usually, he, he was usually right. And, and if I said I had the votes, I usually had counted mine. But we shared. We didn't hoard information. We didn't try to ambush each other on the floor. And then we also recognized there are times in which you're going to be pulled by forces beyond what's happening on the floor and to respect that that's that's that happens mm -hmm. and not to hold it against each other and I, I we both made it a point to never I don't want to say never but almost never leave the building after a debate which was on a social issue or something we really disagreed with without joking with each other say going to grab lunch tomorrow to create personal relationships and that's beyond the political so as a successful legislator, you decided that you were going to take a different route. What made you come to that decision to resign your seat and take the job at the Justice Center? Well, I think a couple things. One, um, you know, public office is not an entitlement. At some point, uh, it's, the, it's the people's seat. And, and people can overstay their uh, effectiveness. And I didn't want to be the, that person. I felt I had reached sort of all the effective ways that I could do for five and a half years in the minority. And I looked at um, sort of the second half of my uh, uh, business career, professional career, and thought, how can I be of more value on the issues I care about? And so I was, I was not looking to leave, uh, but I was headhunted for this job, um, and I applied. And it's probably the only job I would have left the legislature for. Um, secondly, I think what fit in was I was exhausted. Um, you know, five and a half years in the minority, um, when you're, you're fighting to defend every day and you couldn't do anything much offensively, um, does take a toll. Uh, and I think the culture of the institution had changed uh, some. I still felt I had very good working relationships with people, um, uh, friends on both sides of the aisle, but I, but I found it more difficult um, to engage and expand those friendships um, because of outside, external to North Carolina political forces, ideological forces. And, um, and I had always deeply believed that you approach each problem in an informed, thoughtful, and intelligent way, that you seek that consensus, that you work uh, to respect people on the other side and their views, and that they, I hope, would do the same for me. And I was seeing that uh, protocol uh, dissolving slowly, and I think that affected me as well. 
And third, this is just a great opportunity. Um, there's uh, The Justice Center is one of the most, I'd say, most effective and respected uh, institutions on the pro on the progressive pragma pragmatic progressive side of the equation in the country, so it, it allowed all of those things. On a lot of the issues you worked on in the General Assembly, you worked with the Justice Center. Yes, that's right. Uh, education, in particular, Leandro, criminal justice reform, housing. What's it like going from being the legislator with the power to say yes or no to? asking the legislature to make decisions. Yeah, it's, it's different. Um, uh, but, but less so for me than others because I was leaving from the minority. If I had done this leaving from the majority, I think I would have felt um, it, would, it wouldn't have been as easy. Yeah. Uh, but leaving from the minority, I felt I could do that, and it was a good transition. Um, but it is different. And it, but it, you have to operate with the same um, set of, 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 of uh, factors. You have to respect why people are there. You have to respect that opinions can d be different. You can't take things personally. You have to provide the best information uh, in a, in a nonpartisan or, in a sense, a bipartisan way. Now, it's really a nonpartisan way. Um, and, and give people options and, and make your best case. And you have to recognize that there are lots of competing factors that affect a legislator's decision-making process, uh, including internal and external ones. And, and you deal with that, and you don't, uh, you don't go burn your hair because you've lost. Mm -hmm. You don't go march in the street every time you've lost. You, you create relationships, you build your credibility, and you do it day by day, and you stay with those um, uh, uh, protocols, um, and I think it works in the long run. Because you've said it a few times, can you define what a pragmatic progressive organization is? It is one that uh, views the issue and presents the policy option that, that you think is appropriate. But recognizing that there's competing forces, you're willing to work and negotiate. It's, again, finding that 60% people can agree on as opposed to saying, if you don't give us everything we want, it's a loss. It's not. You redefine how you're approaching it. You try to make incremental progress. And you accept that incremental progress is a good thing, that, in fact, that's what stays that's what stays the course. It's the whiplash back and forth that doesn't, and that also uh, diminishes confidence in the institution um, and in the legislature, in the legislative process. And so, uh, I, I I think that that's important. And and you also understand that by educating legislators on an issue and creating a relationship, they may you may not win with them on that issue in the sense that they vote the way you want, but you. If you create a dialogue, if you're allowed in the room and, and they want to talk with you and at least find out what you think, that's that's part of the process and that's what makes it better. I used to have, Judge Fox I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> he used to have a thing that he did at many of his years on the bench and, until uh, his later years, and I thought it was great and I think it applies here. He's, he would say at the end of every case, he would call the lawyers and ask them to stand up and he would say, um, uh, Mr. Glazier, uh, Mr. Lewis, uh, thank you so much for uh, appearing before the court today. Your work has made the court a better institution and produced a better result. Mm. Now, I, Mr. Glazier could have lost the case, but I left feeling good, and he made us feel good. He made 
people feel that they contributed to justice. I think it's the same thing in the legislature. I did it for a while as a committee chair, and I would say thank you members for being here. Your work has really resulted in a better product. I think that's pragmatic approach to how you um, resolve differences and pass good legislation. But that can be hard in today's day and age, oh boy. can't it? <laughs> yes, it can, but if we don't try, then we have created a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that uh, the institution fails, and we can't do that. I mean, there has to be an optimistic view. There have to be leaders as opposed to followers. Um, uh, there have to be people who value the legacy of legislative um, uh, enactments and, um, and, and the history of the state and uh, uh, faithfulness, uh, fidelity to the, the bigger, longer-term goal. Gerald Ford um, gave a speech near the end of his life, and he said he, w- he was concerned that we were entering into a time when there were too many candidates without a core, hiring consultants without conviction to run campaigns without content. But instead, we ought to value authenticity over ideology, morality over expediency, and long-term community interest over short-term self-interest. And I don't think, he's, I, don't think I could say it any better. Yeah. So you've talked about this, some, your philosophy of working with the other side. But in today's age, we are polarized. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our political realm today, what would it be? I would go back to Judge Fox's philosophy to impart to everyone a, 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 a real adherence and fidelity to the theory that civility breeds civility and incivility breeds incivility in how you approach anyone and anything. Um, and if people could do that and, and actively listen to each other, you know, uh, sometimes we, most of the time, when we're listening, we're really just thinking of the next answer or the next question. We're not really listening. So really listening to someone and developing a, a personal relationship with them beyond whatever the issue is, is crucial. Um, so I guess that would be it, to treat each other the way you want to be treated in a, in a civil manner, to not make things personal, and to spend time with each other talking about your family, your life, your, uh, your upbringing, the, the games you're going to, something other than the politics of the moment. And that at least creates the conversation and the human bond that allows discussions to then happen. Do you think part of the civility that we saw, and I I know it wasn't perfect, during your first half of your uh, tenure may have had to do with that we didn't have social media everywhere? Oh, social media has not been helpful um, (laughs) in in every way uh, in in this regard. And I I think it gives people license to say and do things they never would have, uh, thinking they're anonymous or not caring. Um, When you attack someone uh, personally, um, without consideration of any consequence to them, their family, their their profession, um, it is an awful thing. And social media can be used to the benefit, but it can also and is too often used to hurt. Um, uh, that wasn't the purpose of it when it came about. But it doesn't mean just we have to live with it. It's here. Um, and so how do you get beyond that? Well, the way you get beyond that is by creating enough of a relationship with someone that if they hear that you said something and it's being put out by social media, they don't immediately think, 
that bastard. Mm -hmm. They think instead, all right, let me check it out with Rick and let me call him because I don't, I just don't believe he would say that. And that requires time and care and nurturing of the humanity. Um, you know, uh, Tom Brokaw wrote a, a book years ago, uh, The Greatest Generation, but in it he said it would be be sad if we found out one day that we woke up to find we have, we have wired the world but short-circuited our soul. And I think that's a, a sentence that we should take to heart. There is no machine and no software and no social media that can replace human kindness and caring and love. Um, and I think we need to return to some sense of that and that requires leadership. Yeah. Well, Rick Glazier, we appreciate everything you did in your service in the General Assembly. We appreciate everything you're doing in, in public policy now. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you both for having me. This was a fun discussion, and I appreciate it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Sometimes we'll play a game where you say two people you'd love to have dinner with. And if I had to choose, I would choose Rick Glazier and John Hood. I love the way they think. I love that they have, for John, it's these strong conservative values. For Rick, it's these progressive, or as he likes to say, pragmatic progressive values. When they're talking about issues, it, it just harkens back to a time when policy debates were just that, policy debates. You weren't attacking people. You weren't going after them personally. They're both happy warriors, and they're willing to look at compromise. Rick Glazier, to me, I, I noticed when he would debate on the floor, and again, I said it in the interview, he was the best debater for the Democrats, not just because he had the facts and that he presented the facts, but the way he did it, and you've seen this when you've watched the House session, sometimes people get up to speak, and that's your opportunity to get on your computer or to text somebody or do something else. If you watched Rick Glazier debate, people would stop what they're doing, swivel their chair around, and look at him as he debated, and you would see folks nod. Didn't mean that they changed their vote, although I did. I have seen him change votes before. He is just a good person, and we need more people like him, whether you're conservative, moderate, or liberal. We really do need more Rick Glaziers, and for that matter, Skip Stamps, who he, he referenced in the interview. Those two together, Sky, they were a potent, potent partnership. Tweet, tweet of, of the week. week. This week's tweet of the week, we're going back to NCDOT at NCDOT <laughs> that someone's, it's an article from the NNO, woman's fart vanity license plate recalled. And NCDOT put up that article and you can see the picture of the plate that says fart and it says, <laughs> we know it stinks. <laughs> oh, they got a lot of good attention on Twitter. Do we even know who's running that DOT Twitter account? No, but they're doing a great job. So good. This was their second time as our tweet of the week, going back to the ice ice baby. Yeah. 
appreciate that sense of humor, especially from DOT, which you kind of think of your quintessential bureaucracy, but they really have a good sense of humor over there. I do have to say when I moved here, I remember telling my mom that I have never seen so many vanity plates in Illinois. People just don't have, you know, the picture on your plate Mm -hmm. that you can get here and just a lot of symbols. We didn't have symbols on our plates in Illinois. So I like the ones people have like the money sign here. There's just a lot. I saw one out front maybe last year, two years ago that I tweeted about and someone had Wawa on their plate. Like imagine liking a gas station so much you wanted it on your plate at all times. So people knew that you liked Wawa more than sheets. That's crazy to me. So speaking of crazy, again, our one year anniversary. So we are taking it back to 2018 when I told Brian that we should have a podcast and I made an outline because I like to plan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. she makes lots of outlines and lots of charts. So you were pitching the idea and I I was on board with you. I just didn't know quite like, okay, what are we going to talk about? Let's do a podcast, but but are people going to listen? And you came up, well, we kind of brainstormed together, right? Some ideas that we thought we could have a format for a podcast. Now, we don't follow this format, and there's a good reason why. First, we were going to title it Fried Squash Wednesday. That's right. Still not a bad title. <laughs> but the tagline was going to be, we don't make jokes, we just watch the government and report facts. Yes, yes, all right. So we were going to do some segments where we're going to have breaking news, and we're going to break them up into three categories. <laughs> We were going to have blockbusters. These are your big items of the week. And that's kind of what we do. We we did kind of keep that. Then we were going to do constitutionally sound. These are bills that, you know, skirt the rules. (laughs) Maybe not be, they're not constitutional. And then we were going to do veto overrides. We do do veto overrides. But then the second section after breaking news was going to be this. Who thought that was a good idea? (laughs) You know, just kind of some of the things that are silly or things that are being said or maybe these weird press conferences that go off the rails <laughs> at times. Yeah, this would have been a good segment that, yeah. that was in our original outline. WTF and AF. So WTFs are like wild things that happen. A great example. Not literally wild things. I mean, WTF, we know what that means. What the, you know. And then as, yeah, you know. You know, maybe the Sin Van came this week. Let's talk about what was on the Sin Van this week. And that's the van that comes, parks at the General Assembly. And sometimes they change their messaging and they have like a bunch of stuff stuck to the van saying about different sins or other things they are opposed to. A lot of opposed, very graphic cartoons. (laughs) The stick figures on that van are are pretty graphic. I think think you made your point, sir. All right, okay. Okay, um... And then the AFs would be like, cool things, outfits. You remember when Lauren Horst used to do the General Assembly fashion? Yes. Yeah, we could have brought that back. Okay. Uh, we were going to do a General Assembly history <laughs> section on the podcast. To be clear, we did sort of do that for a while. We did a new frame. <laughs> you remember that? We did a new frame fact of the day. <laughs> yes, I remember that. And people came up to us and they were giving us facts. Remember yeah. David Lewis gave us one. Andrew Tripp gave us one. Yeah, we got called into offices. People were like, we thought we were having meetings. People were like, hey, we'd like you to share this fact. But, <laughs> all right, so here's one that was really uh, near and dear to my heart, and that is we're going to do a section on legislative crushes. 
who do you have a crush on? We all have our legislative, I have my legislative crushes. And everyone knows who yours are. <laughs> they're not in, in any lascivious way. I just, I'm intrigued by their legislative crushes. Thank you. We were going to do a debacle section and like, <laughs> you know, have people debate things. And we had, we even wrote down some different people. And of course, that was from 2018. Most of these still stand, actually. <laughs> yeah. Travis Fain versus Brent Woodcox. Yeah. West Tripp versus Jeff Hauser. <laughs> if you follow on Twitter, you'll see what we're saying. These fights kind of percolate throughout session. And we, yeah, do a whole section on that. Just have them duke it out right here on the Do Politics Better podcast. <laughs> L.A. Gossip. Legislative assistant gossip because they have the best gossip. True. Old people in the internet. Yes. This goes back to some George Representative George Cleveland tweets. <laughs> Where he typed out hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> or pound. Yeah. 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 Protests. Best signs. I, I love a good protest sign. Yeah. Or a chant. You like that both sides use the same chants sometimes. Yes, that is something I've noticed. The progressive side and the conservative side, no matter what you are on the issue, you're going to use the same songs. You're just going to change the words slightly. The next section I'm still passionate about, and I've been trying to convince Brian that we should do it, is on the street. So you just interview people on the street. Like, <laughs> who is your state representative and just see how, what people say who is the speaker of the house you know stuff like that it would be hilarious yeah set up shop right here on the corner of south blunt and davy street and ask people if they support the let them play let us watch bill and get their honest reaction on recording all right oh. and then the last section we were going to do on our original podcast if we had launched it in 2018 it would have been... Let's get fiscal. <laughs> and we've been doing that with kickball. <laughs> so let's get... Since it's the same word to everyone. So these are the, these, this is a word fiscal that gets mixed up at the General Assembly a lot. Like, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to see a fiscal note on this bill. But they don't say fiscal. They say, I'd like a physical note on this bill. We kept this on your computer file. It's here for posterity's sake, but we wisely decided that this would not be a sustainable format <laughs> for a podcast, right? I guess if you're saying it, I'm still pretty passionate about it. <laughs> 52 episodes, one year in, it still is a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. But I know that legislators and policymakers have expressed their appreciation for being able to come on to a podcast and share their story. And I'm just amazed at just how many listeners we have that log in every week. And log down in? How old are you? <laughs> they log in? They download. <laughs> the podcast, listen, share it, put it on social media. It's just been great. It has, and we've learned so many things about people, and it has been really fun to get to know people on a deeper level. Yeah. Appreciate everyone who has come on to the podcast, starting with Representative John Torbett, who, you know, we are the OG, the OG man. We were three episodes in, and we we're like, hey, we need to have a guest. He's like, sure. Uh, all the way to today, Rick Glazier. And I'm looking forward to 52 more interviews for this coming year. 
Well, thank you for being my partner on the podcast over the last year. You have been great. Thanks to the advertisers who make this possible, the North Carolina Travel Industry Association, the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. We appreciate all of their support. We're looking forward to another year, more interviews, and more laughs. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Do Politics Better podcast. Like Brian said, we so appreciate everyone who listens, comments, subscribes, and we really are so grateful for your support. So this weekend, it is 80 degrees today outside. It's going to be wonderful all weekend. Brian is having a little boys weekend at the beach that I wasn't invited to, but nobody's mad about that. (laughs) So while you're out enjoying the weather, doing whatever you're going to do this weekend, please remember to do politics better.